The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Thank you very much, Steve. Just um, to put my service to the National Committee in context, I want to say that uh, I've been working for the National Committee for 40 years because when I was a graduate student at the University of Michigan in the early 1970s, Alex Eckstein was the president of chairman of the board or whatever it's uh, the board level person and I was supposed to be his research assistant doing things on his research but in fact he assigned me mostly to do things having to do with the national committee and advancing their programs and so I've been involved from uh, for, for quite a few years. This book is as the title suggests is trying to explain what China needs to do to sustain the success that it has uh, uh, achieved over the last uh, really almost three and a half decades now in terms of very, very rapid economic growth and lots of other positive things that I could talk about that I won't because I think most of us uh, know about them. Um, and it is addressing primarily a series of imbalances that have emerged particularly strongly in the economy since roughly the middle of the last decade, maybe 2003, 2004. Uh, you can see it uh, uh, on the internal side. Um, the investment share of GDP has gone into the stratosphere. It's averaged uh, almost 45% of GDP uh, since uh, 2004, hit a peak of, uh, we don't, don't have the data for 2011 yet, but hit a peak of almost 49% in 2010. No other economy in the world has ever invested this large a share of what they produce. And obviously, if investment is going up, something has to be going down and it's consumption. Consumption has declined, uh, again, as you can see, fairly steadily. Uh, it was pretty flat back in the 90s, and then it began to decline in the early part of the last decade. So consumption is very small as a share of the economy. Just for reference, consumption accounts for about 70% of GDP in the United States. China's the country for which the consumption share of GDP is the lowest of any economy that we have data for. There have also been imbalances on the production side. The manufacturing share is, is very large uh, for a country at China's level of economic development. Its service sector is relatively small. I think in the book I call it diminutive. Uh, and, of course, China has also had very large external imbalances reflected in very large uh, trade and current account surpluses uh, from roughly 2003-2004 on. So I'm going to go through and try to explain some of these imbalances, how they arose, and I'm going to focus in particular on what I see the linkages between the internal imbalances and the external uh, imbalances. And just to put my cards on the table, I am strongly of the view that one of the drivers of what's been going on in China is <coughs> financial repression. Now, there are many different ways you can measure financial repression, but certainly one is what's the real return to saving. And before 2004, the average return on a one-year savings deposit, which is just the nominal interest rate minus inflation, was about 3%. And as you can see from the diagram, for the last eight years, it's on average, it's been negative about a half a percentage point. Now, the background, of course, is that the central bank is in complete charge of interest rates. They can set any nominal interest rate that they want. The banks all pay that rate of interest. So. Clearly something, so if inflation goes up, they can raise the rate if they, if they choose to, uh, to keep the uh, real rate in positive territory. They did not do that beginning in 2004, so the average rate has been negative, and as you can see in some periods, 
in some individual years like 2008, it's really been quite negative and it got quite negative uh, around the third quarter of last year as well. What has this, uh, what has this done? Um, a couple of things. First of all, it has caused households to save more. I, my theory is that Chinese households basically are self-insuring. They're worried because they don't have adequate medical coverage if somebody in their family gets sick, if you go to the hospital, you know, unless you have cash in advance, you're not getting in. Uh, uh, economists sometimes use a fancy term for this precautionary demand for saving. Uh, you don't have a good retirement program, so you save. So you have an idea about what kind of liquidity you need. So if the real interest rate goes down, it's going to take you longer to get to have the kind of liquidity you need, so you compensate by actually saving more. And so that meant that household consumption went down. So really there are two reasons household consumption went down after 2003. One is they earned less from their interest. Chinese households have lots of money in Chinese banks, and their interest income from those deposits declined. That reduced their income. That reduced their consumption. And then compounding that effect, uh, that negative effect on consumption, they began to save more. So if you think back to that diagram on the declining share of consumption, particularly after around 2002-2003, uh, this is one of the main explanations. So financial repression reduced income and caused people to save more. Now, what did households do with the savings, uh, increased level of savings uh, that emerged in the second half of the last decade? Well, we know they have capital controls. If you're very well connected, you can move your money offshore and invest in real estate in Vancouver or uh, wherever. But most Chinese households can't do that. Um, the Chinese stock market has not been a, a very strong performer in recent years. It's still down 70% from the 2007 peak. And most uh, Chinese households don't regard, and I'll show you some data later, don't regard uh, equities as a viable long-term asset class. Uh, so what has happened is that households increasingly have gone into property, in, into residential property. And property as a result of this has become the main driver of China's economic growth over the last six or seven years. Um, <clears throat> you can, as you can see, it roughly doubled. Now there are a lot of expl potential explanations for this. Some people say it's urbanization, but when you look at the numbers, you find out that the urban population was growing by 25 million a year uh, up to about 2003, and 2004 and afterwards, it's only been growing about 19 million a year. So urbanization doesn't look like a, a natural explanation. I think it's the low rate of return on financial assets. In the first period, you were better off having your money in the bank and earning a positive rate of interest, and house price appreciation was modest. In the second period, you put your money in the bank and watch it evaporate, or you go into property. And much of the property investment in recent years has been people that are buying for investment. There's a very good survey by one of the real estate companies, an independent real estate company, for example, that uh, calculates what percentage of people that are buying flats are doing so because it's going to be their primary residence versus people that are buying them because they think they're going to be able to uh, earn a high return by selling them later. And in the first quarter of 2009, about 40% of all flats being purchased across 30 cities in China were being purchased by people who were buying them for investment purposes. They were not going to be their primary residence. So that's what's driven this in, into uh, very high levels, over 9% of GDP last year. I don't think this is sustainable, and I'm going to 
run through quickly a number of reasons. First of all, if you look at China in comparative terms, it's a, it's a pretty big outlier. Uh, in the U.S., at the peak, we were investing 6% of GDP in residential property in 2005, just before things went bad. India is currently at the level of about a little over 5%. I went back and looked at the data for Taiwan. In the 70s and the 80s, when they were growing rapidly, they were urbanizing roughly at China's level of economic development. Today, it averaged in that two-decade period about 3%, and the all-time high year was uh, 1980 when they invested a little over 4% of GDP. So China's a big outlier in terms of the share of investment going to property. The second reason I worry about the sustainability of uh, the current pattern is the distribution or the composition of household wealth. You can see in this diagram basically green is property and that share has doubled over a little more than a decade. Uh, red is the bank deposits and that has gone down. It's hard to imagine that the share of urban wealth held in the form of real estate is going to double again in the next 10 years. That, that would put it up to 80%. Um, China's already an outlier. In the U.S., at the peak in 2005, before the price correction started, American households on average had about 32% of their wealth in residential property. So China's at 40%. Uh, how much higher can it go? This diagram also points out that China's financial sector is relatively underdeveloped. Not much, uh, not much in equity. That's the purple at the top. Even less in bonds. Uh, so as the financial system develops, uh, I think people are going to want to diversify, and I don't think housing is going to continue to expand its share of household uh, wealth in China, and when it quits expanding, the demand for property is going to go down. Um, another reason is debt. Households have borrowed uh, a great deal of money, uh, particularly since the end of 2008. You can see roughly Household indebtedness relative to after-tax income has roughly doubled. Uh, mortgages are the biggest share of that debt. I think a lot of people aren't aware of the fact that Chinese households have a lot of access to credit from the banking system. This is no longer a banking system that just lends uh, to state-owned companies. So at some point, households, hopefully they'll be wiser than households in North America, or at least in the U.S., uh, at some point they may recognize that their capacity uh, to finance more debt is limited and they will not continue to borrow, uh, accelerate their borrowings at the pace we've seen over the last three years. Just by comparison, the U.S. households, of course, got up to a much higher number, but in most years we went, we're going up by 2% per year, 2.5% per year. As you can see, China's gone from roughly 30% to 50% in, in three years. And finally, looking at it from the point of view of banks, if you look at the total, uh, the blue line shows you the, the <coughs> share of the loan book of Chinese banks that is going for property, either mortgages to individuals or lending to property developers. And it's gone from around 13% up to something close to 20%. At some point, if banks are managing their risks, they will not continue to... Uh, increase their lending to the property sector at the pace that they have over recent years. So any of these um, factors could lead to a slowdown in the demand for residential property. And the reason the investment share of GDP is so high is primarily because property investment has increased so much. And you look at the upstream and downstream linkages of property, it accounts for an enormous share of economic activity in China. It's not just the 9% of GDP going into property. 
40% of China's steel output goes into residential property, a very large share of cement, aluminum, copper, and a broad range of other materials goes into residential construction. White goods uh, also very heavily tied, the sale of white goods very heavily tied uh, to uh, <coughs> new purchases of property. So there's a very large share of the economy that is tied to property. So if the demand for property goes down for any of the reasons I just suggested might emerge, then uh, the economy, unless something else happens, the economy is going to slow down uh, quite uh, substantially. Now, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and do what I said at the, I would at the beginning, and that is talk about the relationship between the imbalances I've been talking about so far, which are internal, too much investment, not enough consumption, too big a manufacturing sector, very small service sector, which is obviously related to little consumption, and talk about the external sector and what was it in particular that happened around 2003-2004 that led the central bank to change its policy. Well, <clears throat> the background is that China fixed or unified its exchange rate system in the mid-1990s around 95-96. They were tied to the dollar. The dollar was appreciating, therefore the RMB was appreciating from mid-90s up until around 2001 by about 4 or 4.5% per year. And as a result, as you can see in this diagram, China's current account surplus was pretty small, a little less than 2.5% per year. The Chinese weren't paying attention. The value of the dollar peaked in February of 2001 and then started to depreciate. And the Chinese stayed pegged to the dollar, so pretty soon the RMB also started to depreciate. And pretty soon China's current account surplus, as you can see by the blue line, after 2003 started to go up very, very rapidly. But remember, the currency didn't appreciate very much. It depreciated from 2001 through 2005. Since 2005, it's appreciated a little bit about 30% cumulative, but on average, uh, over the last seven or eight years, the, the currency appreciation has been less than half a percent per year. Well, in the face of a massive current account surplus, uh, the central bank was basically given the assignment of keeping the currency from appreciating, and in order to do that, they had to buy up massive amounts of foreign exchange. Um, it's about 3.5% of GDP in the early years, and the more recent years, it's been something close to 10% of GDP per year. This created a dilemma for the central bank. China's central bank, like all central banks, has its primary mission of maintaining price stability. But at some time around uh, in the middle of the last decade, they also were given the assignment by the State Council or the Standing Committee, the Politburo, or whoever makes these decisions, that they didn't want the currency to appreciate very much, and so they had to intervene. Now, we always talk about intervening in the foreign exchange market, buying up foreign exchange, but what I like to do is to kind of flip that around. How do you buy up foreign exchange? You sell domestic currency. So a 9% purchase of foreign exchange as a share of GDP is a massive injection of money into the, into the system, which would create eventually inflation and which would then conflict with the primary goal of maintaining price stability. So my hypothesis is that one of the reasons, um, uh, so they had, to, they had to sterilize the increases in the money supply. How, that's, uh, that's a term of art in the economics. It basically means you get that money back out of circulation, either by raising the re required reserve ratio, which is the share of deposits that banks must uh, keep at the central bank, or you um, 
issue bills. The central bank issued a very large quantity of bills. So these bills and the required reserves are what I call sterilization liabilities. So we always think that the central bank, in the form of its operating arm SAFE, has 3.2 trillion in foreign exchange reserves, but they also have liabilities that are very similar in size. And thinking of finance, if you have a liability, what does that mean? You usually have to pay some interest on the liability. And as you can see in this diagram, by 2007, 8, 9, and so forth, uh, the liabilities were in the 40 to 45 percent range. And what was happening was the central bank was starting, uh, actually throughout this period, the central bank was actually losing money. You know, it's investing in short-term treasuries that are currently paying 25, 35 basis points. It's paying 1.6 percent on required reserves. It's paying about 3 percent on bills. And so on a cash flow basis, the central bank was losing money. So in order to minimize the losses, they kept domestic interest rates as low as possible. So the first objective was to minimize their losses, to make sterilization uh, uh, less expensive. And essentially, they, they shifted the cost of sterilization onto the banks, making them buy bills at a very low interest rate, put 21% or at the peak last year, 21.5% of their deposits on reserve at the central bank so they couldn't be lent out. Uh, and they got a relatively low interest rate. The banks, banks were being very heavily taxed. Last year, the average loan rate was about 8%, and banks had 21% of their assets uh, on deposit at the central bank, only earning 1.6%. They held a huge quantity of central bank bills, paying about 3%. So these, there was a big tax on banks. That brings me to the second reason that the central bank and the government more generally followed this low interest rate policy uh, after around 2003 or 2004, and that is remember that the government had invested, the estimates vary a little bit, but something in the neighborhood of 3 trillion RMB in recapitalizing the banks in the very late 90s and the early part of you know, 2001, 2003 created those asset management companies, rolled off 1.4 trillion in crummy loans, uh, and so forth. The, uh, I think it, I think it was, uh, I can't I think this is when Zhu Rongji was still in power, and this is what, you know, this is what he called, this is the last supper. No more bailouts. I think I have a slide on that. Maybe I, maybe I, I guess I didn't put that one in. Um, so the, basically, the government wanted the banks to be profitable. So they were making them take on a lot of, uh, you know, they were paying them very low interest on a lot of bank assets, which are central bank liabilities. But basically, the Ministry of Finance and the central bank made it up to the banks by setting the deposit rates very low. They set the deposit rates very low. So the banks had a very cheap cost of funding, very large spreads. You look at the data on international banks. Chinese banks in recent years have been making in excess of 1% return on assets, which is higher than almost any other bank in the world. It's even not, not weak U.S. banks, but you know higher than HSBC, Standard Charter, and some others that have been performing very well, relatively speaking, in recent years. So the story then is there was sterilization was going to be expensive. The central bank didn't want to pay for it. They forced it onto the banks, and then by setting very low deposit rates, they forced it onto the household sector. So this was basically very typical of financial repression. It's redistributive. Some people are losing, and some people are gaining. 
There was yet a third reason that they followed a low interest rate policy, and that was the fear of hot money inflows. Uh, in the period after 2005-06, there was a very wide expectation that the RMB would continue to appreciate, and indeed it has appreciated in real terms about 30%. So China has some substantial restrictions on inflow of money, but people thought, well, if the RMB is going to appreciate by 3% per year and I can put my money in a bank deposit or some other financial asset that earns a little bit as well, that looks like it might be a very attractive return. But this was a very bad thing for the central bank because here they were already buying up 9.1% of GDP uh, every year in foreign exchange to keep the currency from appreciating. They were worried that there would be, an, and that almost entirely was explained by the current account uh, and trade surpluses, they were also worried that a wave of hot money would be coming in, which they would also have to buy up uh, to keep the currency from appreciating, and that would make the challenge of sterilization to maintain price stability even greater. So they didn't, uh, Wu Xiaoling, who was a deputy governor uh, three or four years ago, said we have to keep a differential between our interest rates and foreign interest rates in order to control hot money inflows. She said there's a risk, of course, that you will, you will create an asset bubble. In other words, if you have very low deposit rates and people go into other assets uh, like property, uh, she said we're watching that very carefully. So in summary, three reasons why I think this low interest rate policy emerged in roughly 2003-2004. Number one, to hold down the cost of sterilization and to transfer it uh, to the household sector. Secondly, to preserve the massive investment that the government had made in recapitalizing banks Remember, they wanted um, they wanted the banks to earn enough money so if there were additional non-performing loans, they could be written off from their own earnings, so they wanted bank earnings to be very strong. And thirdly, they were worried about hot money inflows. So the combination of those three factors, I think, together led to this change in interest rate policy in roughly 2003 and 2004. Now, what's, what's the solution? Um, I'm a little going forward. Essentially, China needs to transition from growth that has been driven by investment to growth that is driven more by consumption. And the book is basically a blueprint for doing that. Um, the most important thing you will not hear as any surprise, I think they should begin to liberalize interest rates. This would give people higher income, a real rate of return on their savings deposits. It would probably over time lead to a reduction in the saving rate, which would lead to a further increase in consumption. <clears throat> it would make uh, property a less preferred asset, and so you, this overinvestment in property that has been characteristic of the last uh, six or seven years would be reduced. There are other things that need to be done as well. There are certain factor prices in China that are still controlled by the government, and they're priced at very low levels. They underprice energy and water, for example. Uh, electricity is a very good example. Um, you might think, well, that benefits households, but in fact, in China, fully 75% of all electricity is used in manufacturing. So one of the reasons we have an outsized manufacturing sector, and it's tilted very heavily towards heavy industry, is first of all, capital is very cheap, so it's a subsidy for manufacturing. You don't need much capital in services in most cases, so uh, the low cost of capital biases investment towards uh, the industrial sector, and particularly with uh, heavy industry, more capital-intensive industry, the underpricing of energy and certain other factors in production also reinforces that bias. 
uh, also works against uh, the service sector. So interest rate liberalization, factor price reform, more flexibility on the exchange rate. Uh, they've come some way, but I think the currency is probably still a little bit undervalued, so they need to allow market forces to play um, a greater role. My view, I don't get into the game of saying it's undervalued by X or 2X or something like that. My view is they should redu they should gradually reduce the intervention in the foreign exchange market so the price of foreign exchange over time is determined by supply and demand in the market and you don't have this extra government actor in there buying up so much foreign exchange. That might take a period of some time, but I think that's the direction in which they should move. And then finally, um, and again, there's a lot of discussion about this in the book, is to build out the social safety net. Um, I think that would contribute to a reduction in the precautionary demand for saving. Uh, if people didn't have to self-insure for every eventuality and there was going to be uh, a, a medical insurance program that was uh, <clears throat> more comprehensive or retirement program that was uh, reached a larger share of the population and so forth, that the, the savings rate, which is in the stratosphere today, would gradually come down. And that would also add to consumption. So that, that's the argument that you need to um, liberalize interest rates, reform the few factor prices that the government still controls directly, uh, have more flexibility on the exchange rate, intervene less, and finally build out the social safety net. That's, that's basically what the book is about. Well, the last chapter of the book does talk about, you know, why hasn't this happened? Interest rate liberalization, the market-oriented interest rate liberalization has been on the reform agenda for years. They started out in this path back in 97, 98. Even during the height of the Asian financial crisis, they were gradually liberalizing interest rates. They allowed more flexibility around the benchmark rates that were set by the central bank. Uh, it all came to a screeching halt in 2004. No liberalization of interest rates since then. Even though it was a plank in the 11th five-year plan, Wen Jiabao in his speech to the National People's Congress in March of 2009 said, this is a direct translation, we must have market-oriented interest rate liberalization. Mm -hmm. Market orient, the same phrase appears in the 12 five year plan, which we are now in, but very, very little has happened, um, and that's true of some of the other reforms that are necessary. So, my political economy view is that these distortions in the exchange rate, interest rate, factor prices basically are redistributing uh, in a fairly untransparent manner, but you can still tell. Coastal provinces have been gaining from this policy at the expense of inland provinces. Exporters and import competing industries have gained at the, ex, uh, at, the, at the expense of importers and consumers and households more generally. Commercial banks have become highly profitable because of the large spreads that this system uh, brings them. Savers, on the other hand, are being uh, subject to a very, very high uh, implicit tax with a negative uh, deposit rates. Property developers and local governments uh, uh, have done very, very well. Construction companies as well. I think it's very, very illuminating that if you look at this Who Run list every year that's put out by that Dutch, is he Dutch? The guy in Shanghai, uh, you know, the richest people in China. You read the list year after year, about seven out of ten, eight out of ten people on the list have made their money in, made their money in property. Uh, so property developers and construction companies have done very well. Local governments in some cases have made a lot of money from land sales. The Ministry of Commerce <coughs> has been a winner in this process. The Ministry of Finance has been a winner in this process. 
I put the People's Bank in the losing category. They have wanted to have more uh, appreciation of the exchange rate sooner so that the need for massive intervention in the foreign exchange market would be smaller and the challenge of maintaining price stability would be, be more manageable. But I think the ultimate problem is that uh, there, there's a, a very strong coalition of, of regions, bureaucracies, interests, uh, and so forth that are, have systematically opposed the kinds of reforms uh, that I think are required to move China onto this more consumption-driven uh, growth path. And I think the, the interesting question going forward is whether or not uh, Li Keqiang will uh, and uh, Xi Jinping will be stronger. I think, quite frankly, the problem of the last 10 years is we have consensus-oriented decision-making. And when you have a lot of conflicting voices at the very top, what's happened is that you get stasis. Nothing happens. They don't take decisions. So I think the real question is uh, whether or not the, the regime that will be coming in to power uh, starting this fall will, uh, will change that dynamic and, and push ahead on some of the reforms uh, that I've talked about this evening. Thank you. That leads perfectly. Do you want to sit or stay? Oh, I can, I can stay here. Uh, that leads perfectly into the first question, which is we have uh, the World Bank study, which talks a lot about these kinds of reforms, broader, I think, than what's addressed in the, in the book, is co-authored by an institute under the State Council, a research institute under the State Council. Is this a sign that we're going to see this liberalization occur, that they've kind of finally concluded the rebalancing is not only necessary for their foreign relations, but necessary to sustain economic development internally? Well, I, I can't answer that with any confidence. Um, I, I'll just say a few things about the report. I haven't read the whole thing. It has five supporting volumes, and it runs 400 pages altogether. You can download it on the, on the World Bank Beijing uh, website. I did read parts of it early this morning. Um, it's very, very good in that it's very comprehensive. It deals, you know, everything from green development. They do talk about interest rate liberalization. It uh, doesn't get quite the prominence I think it deserves, but um, and, and many other things, building out the social safety net, reform of state-owned enterprises, uh, <clears throat> and so forth. I think I would make two criticisms of the report. By it, it, it doesn't really identify priorities. Well, actually, it identifies six priorities, but it just about covers the waterfront. Everything's important, and I think. I think in the Chinese system, they should be getting advice saying, you know, this is the number one priority, this is the number two priority, this is the sequence. When you put out a 500-page report and say you've got to change everything, it's, and nothing happens. Uh, nothing happens. Uh, may, some, nothing may happen. I shouldn't be so uh, predictive. Um, and the second problem is it's, um, they don't really go into the question of why these reforms have not been carried out in the past. And I think you really have to begin, and one of the things I try to do in this book is, if you'll read chapter five, is to really, I think you have to shine a light. This is a highly redistributive system, and I don't think many people in China really understand how redistributive it is and how certain segments and geographies and bureaucracies have benefited from, from this system, and they're not going to give it up easily. Uh, the biggest losers, of course, are savers, and um, 
as I said to one of my political science colleagues the other day, uh, the last I checked, that, you know, households weren't very well represented in the Chinese political system. Uh, so I think you really have to, rather than just have some vague, the report does have some vague language about political obstacles, but it, it's so anodyne, it, it's, it's, I think you really have to focus in on who's gaining from these policies. And I think if that's understood, more clearly, then I think you have a much better chance of changing the system than you do uh, in the absence of that kind of insight. So that's not enough identification of, of priorities. Everything has to be done and not enough discussion of the political economy of China, why the reforms which have, as I said, been in the 11th five-year plan, the 12th five-year plan, but aren't being implemented. I'll ask one more question then open the the floor to questions. The, a lot of the argument on, on the rebalancing relates to con the consumption figures which you have out there and up there, and that consumption is too small a percentage. How does it account? There is, it kind of defies what you see in China and what you see on Fifth Avenue in New York, that there is an enormous outpouring of Chinese consumption. And, and knowing how the Chinese don't like to pay the, the VAT tax that exists, and some of this money that is used as consumption is from ill-gotten gains, how do we understand what the true consumption numbers are? Because so much of it is occurring off the books. Well, um, this, this, is, um, this is an issue I have a... Uh, a statistical appendix that looks at some of the weaknesses in the, in the uh, consumption numbers, and there are, there are many. But even after you make allowances for what you know what they're not counting, it's still it, it's almost inevitable that the share of consumption is extremely low. Maybe it's not the 34 percent that the official figures showed last year. Maybe it's 38% or 39% or 40%. At 40%, it would still be the lowest of any economy in the world. And uh, so, and you have to ask yourself, if consumption as a share of GDP keeps going down, I mean, this is not, you know, you can't go to zero. So there, eventually there has to be a correction. The other thing I would say is... It's What's the gray market estimate in that? I, I didn't look at this. Well, the gray market, the gray, you know, there are estimates of gray market income, unrecorded income, but the problem is that the people that have a significant amount of unrecorded income tend to be people in the top, certainly in the top decile, maybe the top 1%, and their savings rate is higher than anybody else's. So it could be that after you account for all this gray market income, that the savings rate is even higher than we think it is. Uh, because people in the bottom couple of uh, deciles certainly are spending 100% of their income. They don't have enough money to, to be able to save any significant amount. The high savings is at the top. And I would say more generally, it's very tough to really make judgments about these things uh, based on, on what you can see because, you know, the average Chinese is not shopping on Fifth Avenue or Rodeo Drive in, in California or, you know, on uh, <coughs> uh, the high street in London and so forth. So, you know, there's masses of the population that aren't uh, engaging in the kind of... Uh, consumption that's visible to Westerners either traveling in China or seeing Chinese seeing Chinese here. Let me open the, the floor. Ken, no? Nick, uh, on this whole hard landing, soft landing debate, a lot of people say, how could there be a hard landing? They're sitting on $3.2 trillion 
cost foreign exchange, but they ignore this point you made about the concomitant liability. I wonder what you think about the resources that are available. Oh, and then there's this very interesting debate between Pettis and Kroger about Ireland. Uh, you know, the uh, huge bad loans and in infrastructure, the huge bad loans in local. How do you see this coming down? As a hard landing, a soft landing, what tools are available to them? Right. Well, uh, I, I am, not, you know, you know, I, I avoided trying to use the word property bubble or a bursting bubble or that kind of terminology or hard landing. I don't think there will be a hard landing in China. What I see is the greater, ri the greater risk is a long-term slowdown. I mean, if you take into account that a very large share of growth in the last few years has been generated by this outsized demand for property and that it could gradually erode for reasons that I suggested, what you could have is a long-term slowdown that would, you know, might last two to three years to get, and then you might bounce along the bottom. Remember, if property slows down, and you have, um, you know, you're going to have declines in prices. I don't know how great they'll be. I'm not talking very much about prices because I, and I'm not talking about risk of the financial sector. People, you know, people still have to make down payments when they buy property in China. I don't think. It's going to be a crash like, uh, you know, Las Vegas and Phoenix and certain parts of Florida, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but if property becomes less of a preferred asset class, demand for property is going to go down, and you could have a very long slowdown. And it would likely be quite prolonged because there would be a wealth effect. I mean, people now have 40% of their income tied up in property. If it's going to, if it's going to it's not, property prices are declining in a lot of cities, not, not dramatically, but they're beginning to decline. Um, so you could have a long slowdown that's fairly prolonged. Now, what can the government do about it? I think the government's done the right thing so far, trying to bring property uh, down, you know, they let the air out of the balloon a little bit um, by putting more restrictions on property investors as, as they have done. What can they do if there's a further, a further correction? Well, they can't really use the foreign exchange reserves because you have to have domestic demand to... Um, to generate economic growth, and if you allow all that, if you convert all that foreign exchange back into RMB uh, to spend it domestically, you know, to increase pensions or improve the medical system or whatever, you would have to accept a very sharp appreciation of the currency, and that I don't think that would be a good idea because uh, it, it would disrupt a lot of the, you know, a, a very large share of the manufacturing sector is not going to be profitable if the currency appreciates by 20% as they spend down their foreign exchange reserves. So then you have to look at what can they do on the fiscal side and what can they do on the financial side. I think, they're, I think the bottom line is that they're much more constrained today than they were in the third and fourth quarter of 2008 when they launched their big stimulus program when, when they saw what was happening in the rest of the world. Government debt to GDP is twice as high today as it was in 2008. Uh, bank lending uh, has been maxed out. Uh, and there's some headroom, but not so much. Um, the way I put it on infrastructure is in 2009 and 10, they built five years' worth of infrastructure in two years. I, I think a lot of it will have high returns uh, long term, but you can't, you can't repeat that every, every uh, few years. So uh, I think they're more constrained fiscally, they're more constrained financially. The infrastructure is less of an opportunity than it was in 2008. So I think the imperative is to get more domestic private consumption. I think that's, that's what they should be aiming for. And in the process, they're probably going to have to accept lower growth, particularly if the property 
if the property market uh, correction is uh, is significant. On this, on this infrastructure question, you know, recently I've been spending a bit of time in Yuma and it, it's no longer a place where you know, the, the roads aren't paved, but it, it does give the impression of a place that could absorb a great deal more infrastructure than it has. It, I, I haven't traveled the length and breadth of the Western provinces, but is it really so that they can't continue to drive growth through infrastructure development? considering what a low base they Well, uh, the question, if you didn't hear in the back, is isn't there really a lot more headroom on infrastructure and couldn't that drive growth? Um, there certainly is some more room for infrastructure, but I don't think it's anything like what it was in 2008. They have, they have massively built out uh, the highway system. You know, high-speed rail has uh, gotten a very good start. I think that project will continue. Um, but when you look at some other areas like... Um, airports and things like that. I mean, they already have massively large airports in all kinds of secondary cities where the, you know, the gates are never filled up. I mean, if every flight that was scheduled for the whole day arrived at once, they'd have a gate for every flight. Uh, so in some areas, it's fairly clear they have built ahead of demand. Uh, now, maybe there's some room in, in some of the western provinces, but also th there are a lot of highways that uh, when you travel on them, you don't see that much traffic. So I'm in general, an advocate of infrastructure being a leading sector and building infrastructure ahead of demand, because I think that works better for sustaining long-term growth. And I think all you've got to do is look at India for the uh, for the some of the rationale for that, where the infrastructure has been a lagging sector and a big drain, a big drag on growth for for quite a few years. But yes, there's some headroom, but nothing like what there was in um, in 2008. and a very complicated one, but let me, let me, let me try to give an abbreviated answer. I, I don't think I know the full answer, but I basically, I'm skeptical about the idea that this unregulated sector kind of has backdoor interest rate liberalization uh, as, a, as an outcome. And I say that, whether you're talking about underground banks or the wealth management products, I mean, take wealth management products. A lot of people don't want to get a negative re return on, the, on their one-year deposit, so they buy these wealth management products from banks and they earn a substantially higher rate of interest. But in most banks, you have to have like 500,000 RMB to invest in these products. So it's a half a, half a billion uh, RMB. Uh, you know, so the average saver is not going to have access to this. Uh, so at the very top of the income scale, yeah, maybe some people are doing a little better than the official numbers, but I, I don't think it's generally available. Um, the underground banks are a, a very similar thing. The underground banks that are so famous, for example, in Zhejiang province, you know, rich businessmen put in a few million uh, to their friends that are running one of these underground banks. But again, the average person isn't going to have access. To it. In other words, I guess the way I put it is they raise their money to lend out in these schemes uh, in a kind of in a wholesale market. They're not taking in 
deposits of 25,000 RMB or 10,000 RMB from, from, say, typical households or smaller, less wealthy households. So I don't think, um, I don't think there's too much interest rate liberalization going on. Um, and I do think many of these phenomena that we're talking about do are, another, are other manifestations of, of financial repression. When you have tight controls on interest rates and people look for alternatives, uh, you get underground banks springing up, you get uh, <clears throat> the gray market and all these other things that, that have become obviously much more important in the last, uh, in the last few years as because I think the reason is because financial repression has now persisted for quite a few years. And it's not, it's not like the U.S. where, yeah, if you put your money in a money market fund today, you're not going to earn anything. But remember, the interest rates have been negative in China now for eight consecutive years, so um, on average. So I think it's a, that has led people to look for alternatives. That's why China is now the biggest gold market in the world. People are going into gold. You read stories in the press about jade prices have gone up 3,000 percent. You know, so the People are looking for real assets that will preserve value or perhaps have a, have a potential for um, appreciation. I've even had people tell me about there are certain kinds of rare teas that age and get better with time. It's kind of like you know buying first growth Bordeaux. You stick them away for <laughs> 20 or 30 years and then they, they appreciate. Uh, I don't know what kind of tea this is, but uh, I'm told that connoisseurs are doing this more and more. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I know some of the kinds of tea, but so I think all of those are a reflection of um, of the kind of financial repression that I've been talking about. Well, we've got half the room. Carl? Um, yeah, I love your presentation. I'm, I'm uh, a little curious. You, you flagged the point about the uh, Loud, you're louder. State. Sorry. You flagged the point about cautionary state, uh, sort of a particularly rural households. Uh, Lowering income households feeling that we need to sort of uh, retain larger sums of our income uh, and that contributing to um, sort of high, high savings rates. I have thought that the, and you're, you're mentioning the need to build up a social service net as, as, a, as a real issue. I have thought that one of the flagship policies of the Hu Wen administration had been, you know, opening up, uh, you know, rural medical care and the like. Uh, from an economic standpoint, uh, it wasn't the case. Uh, no, I, uh, you know, I, I identified four domains in which I think policy has to change. The interest rate, exchange rate, factor prices, and the social safety net. And in the book, I give more credit on the social safety net than any of the other three domains. And they, I, they have rolled out this rural cooperative health care uh, medical system. They're not even rolling out a, a, a rural uh, pension system. And uh, these are very, very uh, important innovations. And they're better funded over time. The, you know, the medical, cooperative medical scheme, for example, is a, it's kind of a catastrophic health care insurance. If you go for a checkup, you don't get reimbursed. But if you have to go to a hospital for something, then you do get reimbursed, in part. In the early years, you were going to get reimbursed 30 or 40% of the cost. Now, in most places, it's up to 60%, 70%, because the government's putting more money into it. So it has improved uh, significantly, but there's certainly much, much more uh, that could be done. And part of it is a lag. You know, the government announces it's going to have a rural cooperative health care scheme or there's going to be a pension scheme. Well, you know, kind of, I think there's kind of a show-me attitude and people don't discontinue saving immediately because they think there's going to be a good government program for them a few years down the road. But I think gradually it will have an effect. I think they could do more in that area. Okay. Um, you, you say that uh, there would be more reform if people understood the, the, the dynamics of financial repression, that there are winners and losers. 
But on the other hand, you're saying reforms do not occur because the winners are opposing it. So why are they opposing it? Are they doing it unconsciously or somehow they know what's good for them? Well, some of it's, uh, I mean, a lot of it's very open. I have a lot of discussion in the book about how the Ministry of, of Commerce has systematically opposed uh, a more appreciation of the exchange rate. They've been very open, and they're always playing the same card. They go to leadership and say, if we appreciate more than 3%, tens of millions of people are going to be unemployed. All these, and, I, and I go through case by case, and then, then I show, you know, well, over the next three years, we did have that much appreciation, and all those sectors that they were talking about being vulnerable you know, at the end of the period had more jobs, more output, more exports, um, that they were always, uh, they were doing a very good job in, in representing the industries and uh, scaring the leadership and talking about job losses. Uh, so they're pretty, they're pretty overt. I don't know how they have any credibility whatsoever because they have consistently been wrong. Um, in... Uh, you know, in 2009, China did suffer a very substantial uh, slowdown in its trade, but the Ministry of Commerce, in uh, about halfway through 2009, said it's going to take three years before our exports get back to their previous level. 2010, their exports grew 30% and way above the previous peak. So, they have consistently underestimated the productivity of the dynamism of the of the export uh, sector. But a lot of this stuff goes behind the scenes. Um, the, uh, and I think the Ministry of Finance is probably the best example. Um, many people here would be aware that <clears throat> CIC, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, was created by this injection of um, 200 billion or whatever, 200 billion or 300 billion U.S. dollars. But again, we forget there's a liability. The way that money was raised was that the Ministry of Finance floated a bond for 1.55 trillion, and when CIC got the foreign exchange, they also got the liability, so they have to pay the interest on the bond. Well, how do they do that? Well, the banks pay, the banks, uh, you know, the interest rates have been arranged, that they have these massive spreads, they're highly profitable, and banks, unlike state-owned manufacturing enterprises that don't pay much in the line of dividends, banks have been paying out 50, 60, 70 percent of their earnings in the form of dividends, most of which goes straight to uh, uh, Central Hui Jin, which is an operating arm of CIC, and that's the money they use to pay the interest on a very large uh, bond issuance, the biggest bond ever issued in China. Uh, the Ministry of Finance is dead set against having interest rate liberalization. It would cut bank profits. It would reduce dividends. And if CIC can't pay the interest on that bond, who do you think is going to, you know, who are the bondholders going to be looking to uh, for their interest? It's going to be the Ministry of Finance. And the Ministry of Finance is you know, very cautious. They don't want to even contemplating having to spend tax revenues uh, to pay the interest on this on this huge bond issue. Pardon? They're investing dollars, but their liability is is a 1.5 trillion RMB. Yeah, because they raised the bond and and Safe got the 1.5 trillion RMB and handed over the foreign exchange to CIC. But Ministry of Finance also handed out the, the liability to pay for the bond uh, to... That's why Law Ji Wei on the first day said, I have the worst job of anybody in the world. I have to earn, I think the number he used was 300 million RMB per day just to pay the interest. And an appreciating currency, which makes it... Yeah, an appreciating currency, which made it tough to, to, to uh, uh, earn very high returns on their investments. In your advocating the building up of the social safety 
are there any particular areas that you would like to see prioritized and given more focus than others? Um, I think there are a couple. Um, I would put pensions near the top of the list because I think um, that pension money is mostly spent. Uh, it's not saved. And the second I would uh, have is uh, medical. So higher, higher payouts to people. And, and pensions have been raised. In the last five years, I think now for five consecutive years, they've raised pension payments as people that are already drawing a pension by a, almost 10% per year every single year. So, and this is in a period when price inflation, we had a, we had a couple of spurts of inflation uh, in, in 08 and then again in 11. But the real increase in pension payments to those people that already retire is quite high, way, way in excess of inflation. And I think medical is the second because I think that's where the precautionary demand for savings is very high. And there's also evidence from other places. You can see it in ta Taiwan had a system in which about 40% of the population had medical coverage. Okay, you probably remember what year it was. And some year in the 1980s, or maybe it was in the 1990s, all of a sudden they expanded the program, and within two years, 90-some percent of the population was covered by the medical uh, insurance scheme, and the household savings rate went down within two years by several percentage points. So I think the evidence is that uh, there's a pretty fast response to uh, the improvement of a wider expansion and improvement of the coverage of a medical insurance scheme. And that's being expanded in fast. Yes. In yes. We still have a lot of hands and not much time, so let me be frank and then Jeff, but keep it real short. A uh, question about your winners and losers. Uh, on your winners, you had uh, property developers. On your losers, you had first-time house, household buyers. My understanding is that uh, rural people, and I'm bringing the experience from uh, rural Guizhou, where I've been recently, uh, they are very concerned about their land. Now, the land is not owned by them as an individual or a household. It's owned by the collective. But the typical practice, we saw this in Wukong that the New York Times covered a great deal, is for deals to be made over the uh, rural people's heads and for them to consistently lose land and get very little or no compensation. Now, the other side is people who have migrated to the coast question have the intention of going back to their rural interland as their retirement pension basket. So if, if those two realities are there, uh, and if Wukong is any example that that's a, 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 a tripwire of political uh, opposition, what's the policy that needs to be done on this question of the safety net in especially the interior rural areas? Well, I think, I think you put your finger on a very problematic area, and, um, you know, local governments have, you know, made lots of money from taking land away at very low compensation rates to, to farmers and then reselling it to property developers who have made massive amounts of money. I think they have to go to a system where, you know, they, they have to go to a system where the land is sold freely or at some kind of auction. Uh, so there is a market price, and if farmers want to sell, they can sell. If they don't want to, they, they don't have to. Uh, I think that's the only viable long-term uh, solution. Jeff. I agree with everything you've said. I think it's a good picture. But you don't emphasize 
another potential lever that may be beginning to boost consumption. Uh, I hear the anecdotes. I don't know how to read the data well enough to know how strong it is. What is the likelihood of significant wage increases, transferring income to workers, right. allowing increases? Well, uh, there's a section um, in Chapter 3 in which I have a, have a, probably some people will think it's a too exhaustive analysis of wages. But basically, you know, there, there are people like Roscar now in Australia who have been saying since 2006, this whole problem is going to take care of itself. The government doesn't really have to adopt any policies. There are labor shortages. Wages are going to rise very rapidly. The wage share of GDP will go up. Therefore, consumption will rise in this long-term this long-term diminution of consumption as a share of GDP will kind of be self-correcting. Uh, I am, in a, in a word, very, very skeptical because if you go back and look at the data and look at all the segments of the non-agricultural population, whether you're, whether you're people in the formal sector, or informal jobs, or working for themselves, these Guti people, or migrant workers, and you go back and look at the, the best data we have, average wages for all these people have been going up by 10% per year in real terms for a decade. 10% per year in real terms. So a lot of people started focusing in on this wage thing. You know, they read about those strikes at a couple of Japanese uh, plants that were producing automobiles and there were big settlements. Or you read now Foxconn's going to raise their wages 25%. Wages have been going up very rapidly uh, in China, even as consumption has been declining. And part of the answer is, of course, that labor productivity has gone up very rapidly, so unit labor costs have not gone up. Profits to manufacturers have continued to go up, and the consumption share of, of GDP has slid. So if wages start going up even more rapidly than at 10%, or productivity growth slows down, uh, then I think this kind of automatic recalibration, rebalancing could, could become a factor. But I'm I don't think it's going to work very very rapidly. And you can see big companies like Foxconn are moving to the interior where wages are lower. Uh, so um, I, I'm, uh, I, I remain in the skeptical camp that uh, this kind of autonomous, automatic rebalancing uh, through wages is going to work, is going to be strong enough and fast enough to rebalance the economy. Patrick, last question. Louder. I can't quite hear you. Outer. I read something recently where China was settling to trade in RMB in 2010 was approximately 1.5%. Selling is what? Settling, selling, trade, selling, and about 1.5% in 2010. And then in 2011, it was about 11%. And I read some sort of economic forecast that will be 3% in five years. What are the positive and negative implications this? This is a good question, but maybe not a very good last question because it's fairly complicated. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, um, the, the trade settlement, in other words, settling trades in RMB. Uh, which began, as you said, uh, a few years ago and now has taken a substantial portion of China's total trade, is one aspect of, of the internationalization of the RMB, which some people hope, and the People's Bank put out a report last week laying out a blueprint to over a 10-year period to get to 
uh, convertibility. So you first you have internationalization, then you liberalize on some of the capital account items, then you get to capital account convertibility, then after you achieve that, then maybe you would have some significant use of the RMB as a reserve currency by, by other countries. Um, I think it's a very good idea, but um, I'm not sure that there's a sufficient appreciation of what a major step it is to go from just trade settlement in RMB to capital account convertibility. Because to have capital account convertibility, first of all, you, you have to have flexible interest rates. If there's a big gap between domestic interest rates and foreign interest rates when you go to capital account convertibility, either the money is going to pour into China or it's going to pour out of China and could be highly destabilizing. So you have to have market, I'm not saying it has to be exactly the same interest rate as somewhere else, but that has to be determined by market forces uh, rather than just being pegged by a central bank as it is today. Secondly, you have to have an exchange rate that's perceived to be and in fact close to some kind of an equilibrium rate because again, if there's an expectation that the currency will appreciate, then the money will be flooding into China. People will be bond and buy up RMB assets because you're going to get the advantage of appreciation and that will that could be destabilizing. On the other hand, if it's overvalued, you're going to have big outflows. So you have to have a market-oriented um, exchange rate mechanism to have capital account convertibility. And the third thing you need is a very deep and liquid corporate bond market because when you open up on the capital account, a lot of foreigners are going to want to invest in China, you know, and there have been very, very restrictive opportunities so far to make portfolio uh, investments in China. And but the corporate bond market is very, very small, dominated by a handful of um, major uh, banks and other issuers like the Ministry of Railroads, and private issuers are far and few between, and the market is very small and not very liquid. Uh, and China's been talking for a decade about developing a, a bigger and deeper corporate bond market. But, and they're beginning to make some progress the last two or three years, but they have a long way to go. So three big hurdles to move just from trade settlement in RMB to capital account convertibility. Market-determined interest rate, a market-determined, not pure, you know, largely market-determined interest rate, largely market-determined exchange rate, and deep and liquid uh, corporate bond market so that when foreign capital comes in, you won't just, you know, bid up asset, you know, bid up asset prices because there'll be a lot of money chasing very, very few assets.